Good morning. My name's Greg. Um, I've been coming to Two Rivers for several years. It's our home church. We love it. Um, I also get to serve on the leadership team and uh, get to be a part of the teaching team. Last time I was here, I got to teach out of the book of Jude, and the Lord spoke to me and my wife through that book, and so we named our newest baby Jude because it was awesome. So we have a new baby. We've been weathering COVID just like everybody. There's some conflict between my wife and I and how we think we should handle it like every marriage in the room, but we're over that now because we're vaccinated, so it's great. But if you're not vaccinated, I don't care. That's whatever. I don't want to talk about it. Um, and so... But like um, Andrew mentioned, we're going to take a break from Galatians because Jason is on vacation, which is also why I'm wearing shorts, because he won't yell at me for breaking the dress code. There isn't a dress code. That was a joke. Um, But we're going to take a break from Galatians um, just to talk about John the Baptist this morning. Um, His life has richly blessed my life this past year. Uh, For two years, I was supposed to speak at this, like, man camp thing, Um, and it kept getting canceled because COVID lasted longer than a month. Um, do you remember when we all thought it was like going to be like swine flu? Does anybody remember that? You were like, swine flu, COVID, they're the same. Um, some of us might still think that. I don't care. I don't want to talk about it. That's great. Um, and, uh, but it didn't. So this was canceled. So I've been like thinking and like generally just dipping in and out of the life of John the Baptist for like two years now. And his, he came to me as a great case study person for a man camp because Jesus calls him the greatest man who ever lived. That's pretty crazy. He, Jesus says of John in Luke 7, he goes, of all people born of women, John's the greatest. And Jesus was born of a woman. Like we know that there wasn't, like the dad thing was questionable and, and seriously like hard to understand, but like the mom thing was super clear. And so like he's talking about John and he's like, of all people born of women, John's the greatest. So he's the greatest of all time. He's the goat. He's the guy. Um, and so I was prepping for this man camp thing, but um, John's life is, like at first glance, I was like, man, I don't think there's that much about him in the Bible. And then as I started getting in, I was like, holy mackerel, like this dude might be my new favorite person. Um, so we're going to look at his life this morning, and I'm just going to open with prayer because I kind of feel like I showed up. Have, has anybody ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? And you like look at the menu, and at first you're kind of impressed, but then you're kind of like quietly angry. You're like, why, why so much? Like, why so many pages of food? You can't be good at all this. Like, you can't possibly be good at French cooking and American and, and Italian. And you have an, you have a, I kind of feel like I showed up that way with like way too much stuff. So I'm going to ask the Lord in front of you together to help narrow me in. So Lord, thanks for this morning and this space. Um, thank you for the way that you speak to us through men and women of stout obedience in your word. You give us these mother and father um, figures, aunt and uncle, faith monsters in the word that we can learn from, and John is one of them. And I just pray that you would carry me along and help me to bring the things that are of importance to this church body. Amen. Um, Next, um, so that I avoid um, any any, uh, possible whisper of hypocrisy. I just need you to know, um, I have kind of been a jerk to my wife this week. Um, I didn't mean to be. It's only in hindsight. I wasn't like purposefully doing that. But in hindsight, as I was looking back and thinking through like, search me, Lord, I don't want to stand up and talk about things that I don't know about and have people think I know about them. He was like, well, you probably had to share some of these things that you don't want to share. And I was like, okay. Um, I've kind of been a jerk to my wife this week. And 
I'm kind of, I feel sheepish about that because this is my first week of an eight-week sabbatical. And so far, the fruit of it, um, in some places in my life, I'm not like super proud of it. It's like a Cain and Abel thing. Like I kind of came forward and God's like, not good enough. And I'm like, oh, I'm killing somebody. No, it's not quite that. But so I just feel like I, I need to offer that. A lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about from the life of John, I will speak emphatically and passionately about. And so it might sound like I am also there, like with him in these things, and I am so not. He would probably call me a viper and then dunk me underwater and then bring me a house. It'd be great. But um, that's one. And then number two, when I was trying to think about fatherhood, because today's Father's Day. So I was asking the Lord, I've, I've bent a little bit of my study around John towards fatherhood because there's some wonderful, mysterious things around him that talk about and touch on fatherhood. We're going to look at that. But I was thinking about it this morning, and in one moment, I was about to just wipe my nose with the sleeve of my shirt. And I looked down, and I was like, oh, good thing I checked because I have Nutella on my sleeve. And like, that would have been weird if I like wiped my nose. I was like, how do I get Nutella on my sleeve? One of my noses was clogged up because of my allergies. So like, I better just smell it, make sure like whatever it is. So I smell it. It's not Nutella. Um, it's just a, sh- a shpoopy. And, uh, and I just had this thought. I started laughing. I was like, why does that feel like the most real thing about fatherhood to me right now? <laughs> that like you're pulled in several directions. It is difficult to focus, difficult to be present. Um, and many of the things, if, you, if, you're, if the Lord is calling you and you are obeying him towards being a good dad, many of the things that used to identify you are being crucified actively in your life. Free time, hobbies, sports, things that used to like speak into your identity are, are, if you're obeying Jesus towards him, being put to death so that you might, as a living person, be ground up like fertilizer and sprinkled around the feet of your bride and your children so that they can suck from what used to be alive in you. They can suck the goodness out of that and bud, blossom, bloom, and fruit in his presence. And he will then say to you, well done leading your family by dying for them. That's fatherhood. And so I see that in the life of John, even though he didn't get to father any children. Of course we see that in the life of Jesus, even though he didn't father any children. We see it in the life of Elijah and Moses. Moses did have, I think, some kids, but Elijah didn't. And so it's like we see that the spirit of fatherhood and the essence of fatherhood can run strong through um, a man, whether or not he gets to taste the joy of the fruit of his loins. Um, And so that's a piece of it. But around fatherhood and John the Baptist, the whole Old Testament closes with this mysterious statement that is like a woeful, hopeful statement. And the entire New Testament opens by grabbing a hold of it. And fatherhood is the ark that holds the two testaments together with this prophetic word. And John the Baptist is the guy standing underneath it. So I just want to show you that real quick. So if you were to go to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book Malachi, you were to go to that, and then you go to the last chapter of Malachi. And if you can't find Malachi, just find Matthew and go left until you're at the last page of a book, and that's going to be Malachi. So you go to Malachi, you go to chapter 4. I have a little bit of it, but it's right there. Great. But I'm going to read you some context of it. So this is Malachi ending basically a letter to the people of God that's like a discourse between God and, the, and Israel going back and forth. He goes, you've done this. They go, how have we done this? He answers them. You've done this. How have we done this? He answers them. This is how it ends. Um, Surely the day is coming. It's going to burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, just burnt up. A day is coming and it will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root 
or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You'll go out and leap about like calves released from the stall. You'll trample down the wicked. There'll be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things. Then he goes, remember the law. Remember the law of Moses. Then he goes, watch. This is the sea. Watch. I will send you the prophet Elijah. This is written way after Elijah had lived and died. Um, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dread, dreadful, day, dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Period. Send 460 years of no more talking from God. That's how the testament ends, into this gap of silence. Um, it's broken open in Luke chapter 1. So if you have a Bible or you have a phone, you can just go to Luke chapter 1. Um, we're going to pick up on a couple. They are, they are older. It's Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Um, they, are ch they are childless, and she is thought to be barren, which is thought to be like a general, like the Lord has kind of scorned her life. In, in first century Palestine, this would have been like the Lord has scorned your life. Something about you or your deal is wrong, and you're kind of tasting the consequences of your sin. She's barren. They have prayed, obviously, to have children the way that any couple um, in this room or abroad has engaged um, pregnancy and trying to get pregnant. It, it, can, be, it can be a thoughtless journey. Um, it can be um, a trying, it can be a trying journey of suffering. Theirs was the latter. We, know, we don't know if they had miscarriages or anything, but just no babies. Well, now they're older. She's probably um, near or through menopause. He's older. The, dis, the gap between their age is probably about 15 years, roughly. Um, he is uh, by lot, kind of like think about rolling the dice, chosen to go into the temple. Um, no one's heard from the Lord in a long time. They've just been getting dominated by different people groups, whether it's um, Persians or uh, the Egyptians or um, the Romans of late. They've just been getting dominated. The Maccabean revolt went up, went down. It was gone, forgotten about. Um, quiet. No prophets, no fresh words from the Lord, just quiet. Just that haunting last statement. I'm going to send you Elijah. Um, he's going to turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, awaken the hearts of children back to their fathers, or else I'm going to come and curse the land. So they would celebrate Passover and leave a chair for Elijah. They still do it to this day. Um, our Jewish brothers and sisters who celebrate Passover. So we're going to pick up in, uh, where are we going to pick up, where are we going to pick up, where are we going to pick up? Eight. I'm going to give you some context. Here we go. Zechariah, old guy, priest. He has settled into the fact that he's going to be a grandpa with no grandchildren. His division is on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, so think dice, according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, which is, he's not going into the holy of holies, but he's going into like the holy place. There's a little uh, candlestick with seven things on it. They look like almond blossoms, and it's really pretty, and it's, he's going in there to do the deal. When the time came for the burning of incense, all the assemblers worshiped and were praying outside. This where it picks up. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was afraid, gripped with fear. 
that the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. That's like if you're 16 years old, you're like, Lord, I really want a two-door Bronco. You know I want a two-door Bronco. You know I need one, too. I'll use it as a ministry vehicle. You pray that as a 16-year-old. You're 65 years old, and an angel shows up and is like, your prayer has been heard. You now get a 92, a 1992 two-door Bronco. That's happening here. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but okay. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. John means God is gracious. Zechariah means God has remembered. God has remembered. God is gracious. Um, he will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. This is a quiet way of giving the reader a hint that he is going to be taking a vow known as the Nazarite vow, which Samuel and Samson took. Uh, Paul ran it for a little while, but then dipped out. His whole life is going to be this way. No haircuts, no grapes, no wine, Never be in contact with a dead thing. We'll come back to that. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Here we go. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That is crazy to me that the way that God the Father saw fit to send himself to us. He uses the metaphor, Jesus is my son. Obviously, they're not bound to that father-son relationship. Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father's being. God's gonna send himself to us, and he goes, how do I want to make my people ready for me? I know. I want fathers to return their gaze, interest, and perspective, their heart drive to their children in so doing, the children respond, and I want the disobedient to return to the wisdom of the righteous. That's how the people get ready for me. That's how we get people ready for me. Dads, wake up. And that's how we avoid a curse from the Old Testament. I'm sending them to you. Dads are going to wake up. Kids will respond. Good. John the Baptist hits the scene. He's going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to wake up the fathers and the disobedient. That does something to me as a dad, as a father, because um, I resist um, the diminishment of myself that is required for me to be a great dad. I resist it, um, that I would actually offer my life as a sacrifice um, to the Lord, but for those that he has entrusted to my care. I resist it that. Even though I want it, I resist it. Um, so I, I see that in here. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Which is a very similar question to the question Mary asks. You know, 15, 16-year-old Mary who's like, he's like, you're a virgin, you're going to be pregnant? She's like, how? He asks the question, how can I be sure of this? And he gets, he gets in trouble. Um, I won't read it because we got a lot. We got Oh, I forgot to set my timer. We're just call that a mulligan. Um, he asked the question, and the, guys, and the angel's like, bro, I am Gabriel. I stand at the right hand of God the Father. I've come to give you this message. Since you don't believe me, now you're going to be, you're gonna be um, mute, and, mute and deaf. 
until you see it come to pass. So he comes out of there, old man, and he's like, and everybody's like, How, you were in there a long time. Like, what's the story? He's like, And I don't know if you've, any of you have ever seen Legend of the Falls, but there's a father in it who has a stroke, and then he has to write on this chalkboard that he wears around his neck like a necklace. That's how I picture Zechariah for like the next 10 months. He's like <laughs> trying to write like Hebrew letters, and everybody's like, we don't, we're not tracking with you, man. Um, but he has a lot of time to ponder what that's going to look like. He had the Bible memorized. He was a priest. He knew the Old Testament. An angel says, you're going to have a son. You've been praying for it. He's coming to you. His wife, he goes home. They go out salsa dancing. They come back. She gets pregnant. Um, she goes into isolation for five months. Because I'm sure she's terrified to lose the baby, all the things. She goes into isolation for five months. When she comes out of that, in the sixth month, that's when this little virgin Mary, who's the cousin, comes to visit him. Mary goes, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth's baby, John, leaps in the womb. Man, that I would leap at the sound of the Lord's voice and not just nod or make a note. Man, that I would leap at the sound of the Lord's voice and at the voice of those who carry him. Um, so you have all this happening. Um, but Zechariah is pondering what his son's life is going to be like. He's the dad. The obedience of the son is not going to come via an, a word of an angel to John. It already came through the father. John's whole, the whole trajectory and the arc of obedience of John's life was obedience unto the word that his father spoke over him. That is a big deal because part of what I believe to be true about what fathers do is they impart identity to their children. They impart identity to their children. They do that through discipline and encouragement. It doesn't mean moms don't do that, but this is Father's Day, so I don't have to address all the wonderful things moms do. <laughs> but fathers are called and put on this planet to impart the answer to the question, who am I? And they're called to do that through, um, through tempered suffering or, dis or um, discipline and encouragement, calling it out calling out the virtues, calling out character, calling out integrity, nipping with a violence that's, that's tempered, discipline, the wickedness in them. It's what, the, it's what God the Father does to us. It's how the New Testament writers write about them. It's part of what dads are put on the planet to do with their children. And we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit when we come back to it. Back to Zechariah. He is thinking about what the angel said. Your son's going to go in the spirit and power of Elijah. I am going to give you the quickest highlight reel of Elijah that I possibly can. But if Elijah, if you're like, I don't really know, I can't really recall like, the stories of Elijah, you've got to take a second and just open up your Bible to 1 Kings, go to chapter 16, and just read until you don't want to read anymore, and you will get a pretty fair distance. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. That's why the two of them meet with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're dead, but they're alive because God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And they're up there with him, the prophets and the law and Jesus, the perfect union of all of it and the culmination of all of it. They're up there. So that's what Elijah represents. Elijah dealt with water and fire, the two things that John talked about all the time, water and fire. The way that Elijah dealt with it and the way that John dealt with it couldn't have possibly been more different. Elijah confronted the wicked leader of his day, and so did John the Baptist. You have an Ahab and a Jezebel. You have a Herod and a Herodias. Both confront them. The outcomes couldn't be more different. 
But Zechariah is thinking about the stories of Elijah and Elisha. What do you think the bedtime stories were that they focused on as father-son? Oh, man, it was Mount Carmel. 850 false prophets. One-on-one with Elijah and the God of heaven and earth. And fire falling from heaven and consuming a sacrifice. Elijah calling for rain and a cloud. He calls for rain eight times. One of the questions I was thinking about in this was, how many times have I actually asked the Lord for something eight times in a row? Where I like stop, kneel, head between my knees, pray, get up, and like look for whatever I was praying about eight times. Because he prays it once, and then he sends his servant seven more times. And this little cloud looks like a hand. He outruns the chariot on his way back. He speaks with God almost face to face all the way down at Horeb where, where, the, where the Israelites had received the Ten Commandments. When, when, when he is sent for, he just has fire. Oh, is this Elijah? Mm, I get them mixed up sometimes. Um, Elijah and Elisha had similar ministries and similar names. Um, but he was a prophet that people were terrified of. They were frightened of him because the wake of fire around him was real. Um, When he doesn't die but stops walking in his body on this planet, he is caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind or a tornado. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. Um, The only other person that we know of that had that kind of experience was Enoch, who didn't die. So Zechariah is pondering all this and imparts these things to his son, John. This is who you're going to be. This is why not cutting your hair matters. This is why grapes, which are one of the only nice things about the Middle East in the summertime, this is why grapes are not for you. Neither is wine. Neither is dead stuff. That's why he would eat crickets and honey. When his parents died, he didn't get to mourn them. He was a wild animal of a man, and he was discipled by his obedience and restraint from good things. He never put a drop of wine in his mouth. What was Jesus' first miracle? He made 900 bottles of wine. That's not fair. I mean, life's not fair and God's not fair. So I'm thinking through all this and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm I'm pondering this as I'm studying his life. And my wife, even before I left this morning, she was like, just remember this phrase, like where's the hope in this? I was like, okay, God, where's the hope in this? Because John's life is super hard. 30 years of radical, strict obedience for a six-month ministry. Six months. So here's what I want to show you. Where do I want to go? Let me think about this. John the Baptist learned strength and grew strong because of his willingness to restrain himself, not because of his willingness to indulge. One of the most radical differences between um, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world is our definition of strength for men. The world would say a man is proved strong by how much he gives himself to his passions, loves baseball, or loves mountain biking, or loves women, or loves making money. The world would define that as strong. The Bible could not be more, more distinct in its in its difference, it goes, you are actually strong by the proof of how these passions and desires in you lay mastered at your feet and you rule them. Somebody, somebody answers you roughly and calls you a name. Are you able to restrain the strong response in you and answer with nothing or a kind response? Or do you blurt out a brilliant, a brilliant mix of profanities that, puts the, that just buckles their knees? 
If you, are, if you have strong passions towards women, do you just let that eat you alive and never be filled? Or do you restrain that and live in a monogamous covenant relationship with one and find contentment there? The strength that the Lord looks for in men is not in how we give ourselves the things that we love and want. It is how we actually make them bow and lay quiet at our feet until the moment or season when it's appropriate for us to have a little here and there. Esau was called godless because he traded his inheritance for a bowl of soup. He was hungry. So, you know what God would say? So what? Be hungry. This is your inheritance. But it's hard for us right now. We go, oh, but I love her and I'm drawn to her. So what? She is not for you yet. Covenant that thing. Get married. Um, on and on and on. I and here's my hypocrisy. I have helped one of my friends get a brand new, get a, get a new mountain bike. It was really awesome. It's been sitting in my garage for a little while. I have been coveting this. It's just a tool. It's just it's it's like. But I've been coveting it. It's been like eating at me, like literally like a gremlin living inside of me being like, you need this. Like, it's so clear that you need this. And so then I come to my wife and I'm like, I might need one of these. And she, because she is led by the Holy Spirit in quiet ways that I sometimes can't discern, um, she's like, we, you don't. And I'm like, it's a matter of safety. Like how hard I send it, like it's a matter of... I'm in it. Like, I'm not beyond it. I am in it. I am, I am not someone who has yet learned the deep, good wisdom of restraint. But that is the call of the kingdom over our lives. It is not gulp down what you want and get what you want when you can get it. It is wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait upon the Lord. And I watch John's life just fritter away in the wilderness. He's not being fed by ravens like Elijah was. He is making brush fires to like smoke out wild bees so he can get a little bit of honeycomb to sweeten up the crickets that he's eating. You're like, I'm so, that, what the heck are we talking about? That is so crazy. His hair is long. He's wearing a camel skin, which is like camel skin was never good. It was never cool. It was never like, that's tight, dude. Like you, you nailed it, man. That's coming back. It never was anything. He comes out of the wilderness after the word of the Lord comes to him, which is the person that you see the Holy Spirit come down on like a dove. He's the one. He comes out of the wilderness like a wild animal. And people come down to him to be baptized. They know what they're doing. They're coming to him to be baptized. And he's like, you're a bunch of snakes. And he's blowing people up left and right. But everybody comes to him. Prostitutes, Romans, Greeks, Jews, they're all coming down to him, and he has something to say to all of them. He calls out their sin, tells them to turn back, and then he tells them to be fruitful. He names their sin. This is wrong. Change it. Turn away from it. Turn back to God. Now bear fruit. He dunks them in water, but doesn't kill them. Doesn't kill them. So it's not like an Egyptian Red Sea kind of baptism. It's a, it's a different one. It's confusing to everyone, but then he's talking about fire. He's like, the one who's coming behind me is going to baptize you with fire. Everyone's like, what? And he's like, I'm not even worthy to touch his flip-flops. And so that's John. That's John. And he is doing that for a very little while until he puts Herod, who is the Ahab of their day, Herod, on blast for stealing his brother's wife. It's not lawful or right for you to have her. 
We don't know how much agency Herodias even had in that, but she had some. Um, He gets put in prison right out of the blocks. Within Luke, where is it? Is it Luke 3? Yeah, Luke chapter 3. His ministry starts and he's in prison before chapter 4. Before you even get to chapter 4, his whole life, he's been living in the wilderness, not eating grapes, not getting a haircut, not touching a dead thing. When Samson, well, it doesn't matter, not touching a dead thing, to keep in line with this word his father spoken over him because this is who I am, this is what I'm here for. Six months, likely six months of calling people to repent, thrown in prison. No, no big deal. He knows the stories. Do you know what Jesus' first sermon is? Chapter four, Luke. Listen to what Jesus' first sermon is. This happens while John is in prison. Here's Jesus, goes home to Nazareth, Sabbath day. He goes in, he's gonna read that he's a traveling rabbi, so he gets to like open the scroll. He goes to the place in Isaiah where it is written. He opens it, this is what he says. I don't have it, I'm sorry. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Rolled up the scroll, sat down. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, is what he says. Surely some of John's disciples were catching wind of this. Since last time John had been with Jesus, he goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And two of his disciples peel off and start to follow him. Um, Andrew and... John, thank you. Um, Now he's in prison. He's hearing this. He knows how the conflict with Ahab and Elijah went. He knows how it went. And he's waiting. Waiting. And he sits there for a long time in a dungeon. It's not a nice, bougie prison that's run by a corporation. It's It's a horrific dungeon. Herod has a birthday. Tomorrow's my birthday. Herod has a birthday. They travel east of the Dead Sea to a castle called Machaerus. It's a fortress there. That's where John is in the dungeon. Herodias, all the party, her daughter with her other husband, Salome, who's probably 13 years old, they all travel there. This massive party travels to this black fortress that's east of the Jordan, east of the Dead Sea, out in the middle of nowhere, and they have this massive party. John the Baptist is downstairs, locked up. Herod's drunk, everybody's drunk. 13-year-old Salome, prompted by her mother, comes in and does a sexual dance. The king loves it. He loves it a lot. So he makes her a crazy promise. You can have anything you want. She goes back to her mom. What should I ask for, mom? Mom's ready. The head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. The head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. Herod is a beautiful picture of what a man who looks like, is what a man looks like when he's driven by his appetites, his desires, his loves, his passions. Weak. Because you become like what you worship. And so in front of all of his guests, he is tricked, sends the guy down. John the Baptist is beheaded after a lusty striptease dance by a 13-year-old who's actually his niece. And his life ends. No chariots of fire. No, no parting of the Jordan and a handoff to his next disciple. His body, Josephus records that his body was thrown over the wall, boom, 
hits the ground and lays exposed for several days until his disciples catch wind of what has happened, go collect his body, bury it, and then bring word to Jesus. Before all that happens, though, before all that happens, if you go to Luke 7, while John is still alive, he's been rotting in this prison cell. He has lived his whole life outside like a wild animal. Now he's caged up, cooped up, rotting, no deliverance, no victory, no, no angelic movement, nothing that we know of, just sitting there. And he starts to wonder, what the heck? Have I, what am I, what am I doing? Where are you, Lord? Are you really who you say you were? And this, I think this instance is one of the reasons why I love him so much. Because my life is marked more often by that question than it is by the radical certainty of the overmastering dominion of the kingdom of heaven, rolling forward, come hell or high water. I am more often here because of what I have, the prayers I haven't had answered, the losses I have had, the funerals I have been to, the people who've fallen away from the faith that I do know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives me a lot of comfort to know Elijah got there, John the Baptist got there. Here's what it looks like. Uh, where am I? Luke 7. If you look at um, verse 18, I'll just read it to you. I don't know what, I have some of it, but maybe not all of it. Um, John's disciples, he's in prison, told him about all the things Jesus was doing. Calling two of them, he said, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come? Or should we wait for someone else? Um, he had proclaimed, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, John chapter one. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? He is in a desperate point and he just needs a word. He just needs like a, a word. The men came to see Jesus and they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and you report to John what you have seen and heard. Just go tell him what you're seeing and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus says so much awesome stuff about John the Baptist. I am not exactly sure why he doesn't do that in front of them, except for I know that Jesus does not want to rob us of the glory that waits for us on the other side. He wants us to get our praise at the right time. He does not give, I don't think he gives, the answer that John wanted. He doesn't say, yes, I am. I'm the culmination of all things. I was there at the beginning. I am the voice that created everything. I am the seed that hit the earth and it exploded like a womb with life. That's me. I'm the king of angel armies. I am the resurrection. It's not a time or a date. It's when I arrive. 
Every demon knows my name, and they tremble at the thought of me casting my glance at them. That, I mean, like, just, you're like, oh, you're in prison. You're like, kill me now. I'm good. But he doesn't do that. He goes, tell him what you're seeing. Tell him what you're seeing. Let him make his conclusion. It's so, and I have been at moments in my life where I needed more than what the Lord gave me. I thought I did. I needed more than that. But he gave me something. It didn't feel like enough. It felt cruel. And I know that the Lord is not raising up a weak bride or weak children. He is raising up Sons and daughters who will stand like pylons, covered in barnacles. The pier has been ripped away, but we are still there, stemming the tide of idolatry and the rising flood of hell that those who are hungry and lost and searching would have someone to grab onto until they can grab onto him. Those are the kind of people he is raising up, and you only become strong by going through hard things. And so John gets this message back and continues to wait. After they leave, Jesus tells the crowd, he's the greatest man ever to be born, but the least in the kingdom is greater than him. Um, and he, he tells them how awesome John is. Jesus confirms that he was the Elijah who was to come, even though John's life looks nothing like the life of Elijah. It's been a great case study for me because John's life and his response to Jesus in light of the question, this is not how you said it was going to go. I don't know if any of us have ever had that. You read a passage of scripture that says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. Ask me anything in my name and it will be given to you. So we do that. Or um, if the elders of the church lay their hands on the sick and they anoint them with oil and pray over them, they'll be healed. And we do that. We, we read the word of God. We put it into practice. And sometimes it doesn't go the way that we read that it was going to go. I'm going to be filled with, I'm going to be, I'm going to be filled with the spirit and the power of Elijah. I have a guy named Elijah. I can study his life. I got it. It doesn't go that way. What then? Do you fall away because God didn't do what you thought he was going to do? Or do you obey him? In the book of Hebrews, the word believe and obey are the same word. So every time you read the word believe in the book of Hebrews, it's the word obey. And every time you read the word obey, it's the word believe. And I just, I needed this man's reference point for me because I have, I have gone through, a, 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 like anybody, a journey of certainty of God's character and his goodness and his nearness and uncertainty as to whether or not he even cares about the trajectory of my life or the world. And I needed to know that there are other people who are hidden in the pages of Scripture who were not always certain that Christ was victor. John stood as the clasp between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the law and grace. He looked and sounded like an old covenant prophet, but his judgment was, I wash you. I wash you. I wash you. Your sins are forgiven. 
Well, he's getting them ready to hear that. And then behind him comes Yeshua, the culmination of what all the promises were always intended to fall on. Um, Jesus stood as the clasp between God and man. Stood in the gap between God and man. Moses stood between the law and a people impossible. They could not obey the law. You can find it about all the men and women of God. They stood in the gap for things that the, that the Holy Spirit called them to stand in. The thing I had to wrestle with and that I want to put out there for us is what, where has God called you to stand in the gap? And what is it going to cost you? And what will be the fruit of your obedience? Fatherhood, motherhood is a standing in the gap. But there's more than that for some of our lives. God has called you. He has actually shaped you to be hammered into a gap and he'll, his command will be stay there. And it might be the last time he says it. He might not affirm it again. But where do we know, have we thought about the reality that God is not just, um, he is not frivolous in the spending of the lives of his saints. He is thoughtful. Where has God called you to stand in the gap for something? What will it cost you? And what will be the fruit of your hard, hard, long, true obedience? Because for John, every single person that was baptized by him, when they heard Jesus speak, they attested, this is the Son of God. Everyone that didn't get baptized by him could not hear and understand. I gotta give you the passage on that because it's gonna blow your mind. Yeah, 729, Luke 729. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Literally, John's dunk allows you to know that Jesus is who he says he is. Repentance is one of the first steps towards recognizing that you need to be rescued by a guy whose name means he rescues. Yeshua, he rescues. All that to say, where are you called to stand in the gap for something? What will it cost you and what will be the fruit of your obedience? That's one of them. And the second one is this. Can you pull up 1 Corinthians 4.15? I think I have it up here. I'll get it. Hold oh, it says, um, though you have 10,000 guardians. Okay. I read this before I knew I was going to be teaching here, and it just has haunted me. Even though, well, let's see. I'll be right from here. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Even though you have 10,000 podcasts and resources and books to read, even though you have 10,000 teachers and churches that you could choose from, even though you have 10,000 places of input, guardians, whatever, you do not have many fathers. He's writing, that. this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church, which is wrestling with a lot of things, um, sexuality and how to engage sexually with each other and others in their culture, food, um, how they ought to worship and what they ought to do, who can be in leadership and who can't, who ought to talk. They're wrestling with all these kinds of things that, are, that, are, that I would say the church in America is wrestling with right now as well. Even though you've had 10,000 guardians in Christ or, or um, yeah, guardians or teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Um, if you're hungry for... Um, a father's voice over your life, read the book of Proverbs and pair it with 1 Corinthians. 
because Paul is writing to them like a father. The book of Proverbs is written by Solomon to a son, all from the voice of a father. I am always hungry for that because I lost my dad when I was six years old. I never had another real person step in. The Lord met me by bringing key markers, men who input and spoke into me identity, and I called out the virtues. But I'm always hungry for that. I come back to Proverbs all the time, and I'm studying 1 Corinthians during my sabbatical right now. And when I found this, I was like, oh, yes. But if you follow it down, he's, you hear the sternness of a father come out. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you hear it, and I'll try and connect it all together. Um, down at 18, I don't have it here, so you can just listen. Down at 18 in the same chapter, he goes, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not going to come to you. Uh, when I'm, if I'm ever giving my children, my, one of my babies a bottle, and my four-year-old thinks that I can't get to him, there could be a surliness that comes out of him that is um, beyond the normal measure of surliness. Because he thinks I'm tied up, and he's wrong. Um, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Which do you prefer? Think about this as the voice of a father, and I'm going to try and unpack this in a second through grace. Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? And I wrote underneath that in my Bible, discipline or discipleship. You spell those words out, they're very similar. Discipline or discipleship. Both are, they're tied together like this. Um, we respect most Often, the people who sternly, correctly called us out on something and then helped us get through it. But the people who always good game us and tell us everything's fine are not the ones who love us the best. And I read in this, the voice of a father, he goes, you, don't, you have 10,000 guardians, 10,000 whatever, 10,000 guardians, but you're making the craziest decisions of your life because you have very few fathers who are sacrificing everything and letting the livingness of them be sprinkled around your feet like fertilizer so you can derive from what used to be alive in them for yourself, bud, blossom, bloom, fruit. That's the cross. That's the call of every husband in a marriage. It's the call of fathers in their, in their families. So I'm reading this and I go, oh my gosh, the hope, peace in this is that we are invited to endure hardship as discipline from a father who is good. That is hard though if you didn't have a good dad. I don't know exactly why God chose to be known as a father since the world has been far more littered with crappy dads than it has been with crappy moms. That's anecdotal. I can't prove that, but I think we can all like quietly like kind of like, yeah, I think that's probably true. I think we can do that. Dads shirk their post more often than moms do. And we wade through the effects of that in a broken world. And Paul in other places goes, Endure hardship as discipline. The Lord is treating you like a son or a daughter. He wants to purify and refine that which is in you so that you will be lacking nothing. A crappy dad brings you presents every six weeks. A great dad is there through all of it and you actually take him for granted. That's my relationship with Jesus. He's there all the time. I take him for granted. 
mad at him when he doesn't bring me. I, sometimes I want to trade him out for the guy who comes every six weeks with like a, a power wheel and a, brand, and a brand new mountain bike. That's the, that's the dad I want to trade him out for. The hope in this for me is as I look back on my life through the stuff where I was like, where are you? Where were you? Do you see me rotting away here? Could I just get a word of encouragement from you? I now and in seasons can look back on that and worship him and go, I see how you were using hard times to make me strong. Hard times make strong people. Strong people make good times. Good times make weak people. Weak people make hard times. Hard times make strong people. Strong people make good times. Good times make weak people. Weak people make hard times. That is the reality of living on this planet. I am thankful that I have a God who loves me enough to not spoil me into a soft-hearted, yellow-bellied brat child. But he is calling up out of me Christ, who was made perfect through suffering. Because his father loved him fully and thoroughly. The hope for me in this, as I study the life of John, is that God is not wasting my life, but has called me to stand in the gap for something costly and the fruit of my obedience, whether I get to know it or not, will be richly blessed in heaven when I hear the word, well done. That he is near me in my darkest hour, and even when he doesn't answer me the way I want him to, that is not proof of absence, but it could be, it could be proof like it is for my son in the pool when I'm teaching him to swim. I don't always grab him right when he wants me to. It could be proof of intentional, thoughtful, developing love. It feels excruciating for me, which we get that word from crucifixion. It could be excruciating for me in the moment, but in the long run, it brings many sons to glory because the fruit of my life is now the pylon that the lost souls can grab onto for a season while they're looking for their own father. They're looking for home. I see that in the life of John, and his hardships were the encouragement to me in the past year and a half of hard things, not his joys and his victories. Our ace of spades in discipling other people is always our shortcomings and our sorrows, not our praise reports and our victories. Jesus didn't come man of giggles, man of laughter. He came man of sorrows. That's the common denominator of living in a broken, fallen world where sin is trying to eat its way through, but the gospel is rising to meet. And for me, I found hope in a man who endured in the midst of, which is the calling of my life and yours. Endure in the midst of. Hold fast. Hold fast. And certainly so for fathers. Um, I hope... Um, that like a pilgrim walking behind Johnny Appleseed, you were able to grab some apples and enjoy something from that. Um, I'm going to pray um, for us, and then I'm going to invite Andrew Spada and his gifted team um, and Luke Cheevers on the drum uh, back up. And I guess they'll quietly, I didn't give them enough heads up, so now I have to like give them a little bit of lead time so they can get up there. But I'm going to, it's fine. Okay, great. I'm going to pray. Um, Father, I do feel like I have 10,000 voices vying for my attention. 
And sometimes I feel actually um, like I have no fathers to go to. When I'm in a fight with my wife and I, I yell at you for taking my dad and I have no one to call. When I'm exasperated and don't know if I should spank or should not spank and I have no dad to call and I blame you because you left me alone. Um, and yet you have met me and on those walks when I seek you and you speak to me and I know you more in the absence of good things. I have met you and you have met me. Would you, Jesus, would you meet us in the places where we need you? In the places where we um, do not choose to exercise restraint, would you give us wisdom to see the goodness of discipline and waiting on you? Would you give us hope in the midst of times and seasons where we are calling to you and it seems like it's just my own voice echoing back? Would you make us strong? I would rather suffer now and endure than have it easy now and fall away when it gets hard. So would you raise up in me and would you raise up in us a fierce tenacity to obey and know you more? To love you and to have that love prompt how I live. To believe in you and to have that belief move me in a way that is bent towards you in worship. Would you give us mother and fathers in the faith who are markers like a lighthouse for us in seasons where we just need a reference point. The way John the Baptist has been for me or Elijah, Jesus himself, or the list goes on. Would you meet us with those father and mother markers in the seasons where we need a reference point, Jesus? And would we be a people who are quick to repent because that opens the way for your spirit to come in and meet us? On this Father's Day, Lord, would you help those of us who are in that position of fathering children, would you meet us? Help us to become good fathers. Those of us who want that, would you meet us, Jesus? And those of us who are actually mentoring and discipling people, and we have no idea that they call us quietly in the deep places of their heart, Father. Would you anoint us in that? Be lifted up through this church in this city 